Hello and welcome to Venturing in Climate. Venturing in Climate shines a light on entrepreneurs, VCs and policymakers making a difference on climate change. Today, we have Helen Lin joining us on Venturing in Climate. Helen is a principal and founding team member at One Ventures, a $150 million planet-positive VC firm investing in the US, Europe and in emerging markets, launched by the Google X co-founder, Tom Chi. Welcome to Helen. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks. Fantastic. So to kick things off, Helen, it would be amazing if you could tell us about your journey into venture capital and what attracts you to a, to a role in this space. Sure. So I started out in investment banking, classically trained in finance, was working on a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the U.S., eventually crossed over to the buy side of the investment transaction and went to China to launch a private equity fund there. And after that, for my sins, decided it was about time I probably pivoted my career into something more purpose-driven. So did that through business school and wound up in Africa, working in microfinance, living in Uganda, working in six countries on the continent, and providing banking services to low-income populations all over the continent. You know, it was a great job, and I was there for eight years, really inspiring, loved it. But, you know, I was, then I moved to London and I was traveling to Africa every couple of weeks and couldn't keep that up anymore. So I was looking around for, for another challenge. And, you know, when you've been tackling a problem as big as poverty alleviation in Africa, there's only so many things you can work on after that that feel like you're, you're working on something equally as monumentally impactful, right? So climate change made sense, <laughs> you know, another worthy big problem to kind of take a crack at. So I met the founder of At One Ventures, Tom, right at that moment in time, and the rest is history. Oh, through a mutual friend. I am actually quite proud of this moment where apparently he was looking for a finance person to round out the team because he's a scientist and he had found another person who's also a scientist. And he was chatting with this mutual friend of ours and saying, I'm looking for a finance person who's not a complete asshole. Uh, I don't know how to say that. But anyway, that's what he said. Um, and our friend thought of me, which I was quite flattered by. And yeah, so so she connected us. And I, I thought, you know what? That's that's a job I can do. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds like you have an amazing experience. Fantastic. And I think if my research serves me well, you're also into scuba diving. I'm pretty sure Tom Chi is as well. And he talks about where well, he lived near some corals, which he saw dying rapidly. And it kind of uh, spurred him into setting up a venture firm. Yeah. So silly point of trivia about me, the ocean is actually my middle name. Ah. So yes, well, I mean, in Chinese, but it is, it is actually my middle name. So when other people say they love something and it's their middle name, it's a figure of speech, but for me, it's <laughs> true. I, I love the ocean. I love diving. I love marine life. Ocean's actually my middle name. Yeah. And uh, the story about Tom is also true. And it was the impetus for him launching this fund. He has a home in Hawaii and there is a beautiful coral reef near where he lives. And he kind of walks there and circles there a lot. And over a couple of years or so, you know, which is a shockingly short amount of time for change to be occurring in nature, right? Mm. He watched the entire coral reef just blanch and die. Mm. And so doing something planet positive was something he'd always considered he might do at some point in his life, maybe later, maybe in retirement, maybe as a hobby. But at that moment, he decided, no, this is something I need to get into right now, very urgently, and with his full attention. And so he launched the fund. Was there, that's super interesting, was there a moment like that for you in going into climate change, having you know, worked in different countries, tackling different problems? 
was there a moment of clarity for you to move into color? Yeah, I mean, in Africa, I was definitely focused more on social impact. So helping to lift low-income populations out of poverty. And a lot of it's very linked in the emerging markets, right? Because as climate change encroaches upon people's livelihoods, it is certainly going to impact them socially and financially as well. So increasingly, it's going to become really intertwined and you're not going to be able to extricate them so much. The difference in the emerging markets is people don't have as much power to do anything about it. Right. And so, you know, there's that concept of climate justice, which I talk about a lot, that most of the population of the world lives in the global south. They actually contribute the least to climate change because the average income per capita is just lower. So they can't afford things like everyone having a car. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet they will be the first to be the most severely impacted by the devastating effects of climate change because most of them are subsistence farmers. Right. So rising sea levels that will prevent them from being able to farm their lands will hit them first. Food security issues will hit them first. Water scarcity will hit them first. So it does feel very unfair at a basic level. And in some ways as investors, how can we say that we're here to save the planet and then we're only going to invest in certain countries or certain regions right, mm. of, of the planet? Yeah. So I think there's definitely a lot of that mentality that I feel very strongly about and have, have had some moments of clarity about for sure getting into this space. That's great. That's really good. Thank you for that. And at One Ventures, what do they do? What do you look for? And what's your thesis there? Obviously, I've mentioned that the sort of size, but stage, deployment, how does it all go? How does it all fit together? Yeah, yeah. So we're new fund launched in 2020, born out of the pandemic, which is a really interesting time to be launching a new fund. We're on fund one now, which is a $150 million fund. And focused on pre-seed, seed, and Series A companies with disruptive deep tech to save the planet, right? And we're pretty broadly defined in terms of how we define climate change because everything is interconnected, right? So it's not just about problems with things that have tailpipes and spew gases into the air. It's also about biodiversity issues. It's about soil health and ocean health because soil and ocean are the two biggest natural carbon sinks that we have on the planet, but only if they're healthy. Yeah. And so you got to fix plastic pollution in the ocean so that the ocean can be healthy and continue to absorb carbon. You have to figure out, you know, how to crack like soil carbon, Um, you know, and without biodiversity, you have issues like bees who, you know, are dwindling, but are like the biggest natural pollinators in the world. And so, so it's just, everything's connected. And so we say we're climate tech investors, but really We're going to invest in anything that is going to have a really big impact for the environment. And that's more the narrowing function, right? Where we're industry agnostic, we have a global mandate, and that's very broad. But our narrowing function is is we try to only take really big swings and invest in things that are going to really move the needle on on climate change because it is such a gargantuan problem. And there's really not that much time to go and fix it. Absolutely. Do you, in that, in that vein, then, are you usually leading the rounds that you're in and, and how many investments have you made? We prefer to lead, but we are fine to also follow if that's what makes sense in the round. And we've done 25 investments to date. I believe roughly two thirds of those we have led or been the largest to check. We do like to take board seats and all of that. The point is, is we want to help the companies. And so if we can kind of be a bit more in the driver's seat to craft the terms of our investment and maybe take a board seat and that kind of thing, we're just better equipped to help the companies and be really hands-on. 
and there's, you know, there's a lot of energy and passion and just very interesting expertise on the team, right? And so we just, we want to be able to just bring that to the table and, and support companies with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I would actually love to know a bit more about the expertise of the team. And obviously there's the three sort of managing, uh, founding team, but is there anyone else helping you and how do you help those companies? Yeah, well, Tom is the ex-co-founder of Google X, right? So he's astrophysicist, electrical engineer, basically a brain on wheels. He's just really brilliant. <laughs> that sounded, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, highly, highly technical, I'll just say that, and a lifelong inventor. Um, another partner, Lori, she is also a scientist, but more in like the biology fields. And I am, as I mentioned, the finance person. We also have two associates, Luke and Merrill. And Meryl comes from a design background and was also an entrepreneur herself of an insect protein company in, you know, her 20s, which I think of what I was doing in my 20s. And I'm just amazed that, you know, she's already had all that experience at such a young age. Was cool. um, I was just sitting around wondering, like, which bar or pub I should go to that night, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it had an economics and environmental science background. And so, yeah, they rounded out our team, joined us last year. And so now we're five, four in the U.S. and, and one in London. Amazing. So when, so when you take a board seat, are you typically, obviously the seats precede to series A stage, are there things that companies really want your help with and what do they tend to be? It varies so widely from a company to company, that. which is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess one common thread is everybody wants help with hiring and just finding, you know, getting connected to good candidates, because obviously the stage we invest in building out the teams is is a common thing that everyone's working on. So we've recently just hired someone to, to be a, a VP of talent to go out and help the portfolio companies fill those roles. And that's very concrete. The other stuff in the widely varying range, you know, we help them think through strategy, you know, big picture items, and all the way down to really detailed things like, I'll, I'll just get in and start doing some financial modeling with some of the teams. Sadly, the finance function is always the last one to be filled. <laughs> we are yeah. such an under me finance folk. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the enabler. Maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, modeling isn't just about like, oh, here's an income statement or balance sheet and all that. Like, but we do a lot of like operational modeling, unit economics modeling. I sometimes do like even impact related modeling, mm -hmm. right? So they, and you, you know, yeah. I think the founders are generally great about understanding all these things and great to tell in their heads. Mm. And sometimes they just need someone to help them translate that into something on paper or in my case, into a spreadsheet. Yeah. So I do a lot of that work with them. And I mean, Tom and Lori are so technical, you know, they will actually get into like technology debugging in a very detailed way with the team. We were on a call once and I remember one of our CEOs was saying something about they were having a problem with their circuit boards. And Tom actually said, oh, why don't you just like mail one over to me and I'll have a look, you know? <laughs> Whoa, it's incredible. <laughs> this is in the middle of lockdown, right? So we couldn't meet in person. He couldn't like go to their lab and he was like, hey, just mail over one of your circuit boards and I'll have a look, you know? <laughs> Amazing. Love that. That's real value add, isn't it? <laughs> Brilliant. That's super cool. And, and obviously a lot of people are talking about, you know, speed of deployment at the moment, valuations, and obviously climate tech has a particular attraction given lots of value going into the space. So how is At One Ventures thinking about deployment and valuation? Oh, that's a controversial topic. I'll be careful of what I say here. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, gosh, it's it's a race to get this all done, right? There really is limited amount of time to make the impact that we need. And so we're trying to strike that balance where 
we deploy capital and try to accelerate technologies as fast as we can while still obviously being prudent and doing our fiduciary duty to like make good investments that make financial sense. So far, we've done 25 investments. And so we're at a pace of roughly one new investment per month wow. for our launch. Busy. It's it's a little bit, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and valuations when we started in 2020 were great. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was the middle of COVID and, you know, there was a bit of panic in the market and a lot of investors had put their investments on hold so they could reserve capital for supporting their existing portfolios. So it was actually kind of a great time to be a new investor that was flush with capital, ready mm -hmm. to deploy in that situation. So, yeah, we, we did a lot of deals in, in 2020 and supported some really great companies in that time. 2021, of course, as we generally know, kind of swung and overcompensated in the other direction because everybody came back to the markets all at once and there was a surfeit of capital and, and a bit of euphoria. And you're also seeing like a lot of the bigger players in the investment world that traditionally have not really played in climate are starting to now launch like climate funds. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. just more surfeit of capital like from, from there. So, you know, we're trying to, to stay very disciplined because it's just math. Mm -hmm. Right. Like at Absolutely. a certain point, like evaluation just gets so high. It just doesn't work anymore yeah. for financial returns. And it's very surprising to me that some investors are still willing to pay some of those valuations out in the market today because it is just basic maths. Right. So you yeah. kind of wonder like how they plan on getting their returns unless they're using different maths than I am. Right? <laughs> um, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> and so, you know, we're trying to stay really disciplined at the same time. You know, we have to try and remain competitive as well. And that's, so we started looking a little bit earlier stage is kind yeah. of one tool. So we used to kind of focus mostly on seed and now we're looking pre-seed as well. And in addition to that, I would say that we also do a lot of coaching to companies, both in our portfolio, even companies that were evaluating for new investments. It might sound weird that you would coach a company that you haven't even invested in yet. Yeah. But our whole point is we're just trying to like help build the ecosystem. Right. And yeah. whether we invest in you or not, yeah. like we want to help, you know, and so some of the coaching we give these companies is, look, let me take my investor looking at a potential investment in you hat off for a moment and put on just like my mentor hat for a moment and tell you that these high valuations are great because you don't get as much dilution, of course. But if the fundamentals of your business don't support that valuation for the next couple of years, and then there's a market correction on valuations, yeah. you may then be forced to do a down round. And that's no good for anybody, right? Exactly. It's not good for your investors. It's not certainly not good for you, the founders. Anti-dilution provisions kick in, and then the founders suffer outsized dilution at that point. And the whole thing is just, it's yeah. very unpleasant. And so this is, so, so I think that kind of coaching is also something that we tell people, which it's, you know, if you really think that the fundamentals, not just of your company right now, but your trajectory of where your fundamentals are going to go in the next year or so, if those will continue to support the valuations, then you know what? Have at it. Yeah. More power to you. Yeah. But just be very realistic with yourself and be aware that that risk exists. Absolutely. That was a very, very well said point, I think, and definitely something that I really feel aligned with around discipline, fundamentals, and looking out, not just for this round, the next round, and maybe one after that, trying to be connected to reality at all times. You never know what's around the corner, uh, I find. So... Maybe switching gears a little bit here. I've been reading a little bit about that one and your thesis and about abatement and restoration. Can you just touch on, you know, your views on abatement and restoration and how you look at it in terms of more in the more in the spectrum of 
is it still, you know, within our realm of time to tackle climate change with technology and, and what sort of strategies have we got, you know, or is it, is it too late? Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot and fair enough, right? I think if you don't happen to be working in a career that's focused on climate change, it could be very easy to see a lot of the sensationalist media about climate change and then think, oh no, it's too late, right? So I think what happens is you have to calibrate your reaction to the situation so that it is not overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. If you're overly optimistic and you think, oh, everything's great, you know, like, or, or you know, maybe you're Trump, right? And you're just like, it's not even real. <laughs> it's totally fake. So somebody, yeah. somebody made this up, yeah. right? Or, or that kind of sign of the yeah. spectrum. Then you don't do anything as a result, right? Because you're just like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's not real. It's not as bad as people are making it out to me. Everything's going to be totally fine, you know? And you, just yeah. don't, you won't do anything because you just don't think it's a big deal. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're overly pessimistic and you start thinking, it's already too late, we're already all lost, like, there's nothing we can do. Ironically, you end up at the same place and you still don't do anything because you're just like, why bother? It's already too late and we're already all screwed anyway, so I'm just going to go enjoy my life, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you got to figure out where, where it actually is in reality and avoid falling into either of those pockets and on the extremes of the, of the spectrum. And what I tell people is, is the answer to the question of, is it too late, is no. It is technically not too late. And again, there's math to it. You can tell I'm a math person. Okay. <laughs> I relate everything back to math. <laughs> but yeah, so there's math to it, right? So there's, you know, we're as a species emitting about 50 gigatons um, of CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere every year. There's a certain amount that's already accumulated in the atmosphere from, you know, just history. And then if you look at various initiatives that we could do to try and abate or reduce the ongoing emissions, as well as draw down the historical emissions, those you can estimate can, you know, abate or draw down certain numbers of tons as well. Right. And so it's just kind of like, here's the baseline. Here's the plus of how much we're adding each year. And here are the minuses, right, of like various plant positive initiatives that we could adopt. Maybe we tackle green cement and green steel. And then we tackle like burping cows <laughs> yeah right which seems absurd but obviously is a huge problem <laughs> and my point is is okay so it's not too late to fix the problem but right now there's only a certain number of pathways that gets us to the other side of the problem and each pathway is basically composed of a number of these initiatives right on the minus side that are going to cut down emissions or draw down emissions and every year that goes by that we don't achieve enough, right? Pull off enough of these planet positive initiatives, that number of pathways dwindles because it just takes time, right? And then we're going to get to that point where it's just sort of irreversible anymore. And yeah. so we're not to the irreversible point yet, but we're kind of throttling towards there. Mm. And if we don't execute on these pathways and these initiatives that make them up now, it will become too late very, very soon. And so that's where I like to ground people on that spectrum of optimism and pessimism where it's not too late, don't panic, don't freak out, but certainly all hands on deck and everybody needs to be working on this with a huge sense of urgency right now. That's Absolutely. that's kind of where it lands. But what are those those critical things to open up those positive pathways? What what needs to change? What are the sort of priority, you get a priority matrix? There's obviously maybe there's probably multiple here, but if there's a couple that you think are really important, what are they? Yeah, so food and egg big, big space, um, getting a lot of attention now for that reason, as it should, 
So, you know, people a lot traditionally, I think, and historically more focused on energy transportation and that kind of thing as the biggest culprits for emissions. But 25% of global greenhouse gases actually come from food production and agriculture. Not to mention all of the other harmful effects, you know, again, not just about the gases, but stuff around, you know, eutrophication of our water system from the runoff of pesticides and herbicides and, you know, impacts of biodiversity, et cetera. So I think that's a really huge one. We need to not keep producing animals to eat the way we do today. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we all have to become vegan and vegetarian because that's just not realistic in a reasonable time frame, right? Or maybe at all. Mm. I, I can't imagine some people... There are certain people that I certainly, yeah, just don't imagine would ever stop eating. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But we definitely have to stop producing all of that the way we do today. And one example is we have two cellular agriculture companies in our portfolio where you basically take a cell of fish or meat and you put it in a bioreactor and then you kind of grow it and multiply it until it becomes a chunk of fish or a chunk of meat. And it's real. It's not like some soy-based fake meat alternative that does not taste anything like meat. It's it's real meat. It's just a piece of meat that you never had to go and grow and rear an animal and kill to be able to arrive at that piece of meat, right? So that's really, and it's a more efficient use of resources as well, because as you can, as the cows consume grass, as an example, there's a certain feed conversion ratio, right? Yeah. And so they eat the grass and they convert it to energy and mass, which is like meat on their body. And then we eat them. And there's another feed conversion ratio that occurs. And of course, it's going to be something way less than that 100% of the nutrition of what you're eating gets converted into energy for you, right? So in terms of like actually getting calories and nutrition from food, it's way more efficient for us to eat a vegetable directly than for us to feed a vegetable to an animal and then eat the animal. And similarly with cellular agriculture, it's a much more efficient use of resources because you take the cell and you directly feed the cell this like growth media. And so it's just one step of conversion, right? Yeah. Rather than like two steps of conversion. Yeah, makes sense. Interesting. So those are big areas, I think, in food. I mean, gosh, you know, I could go on all day about all the different big things we need (laughs) to crack. Yeah, there are lots, right. (laughs) Um, Maybe one other framework I'll just touch on is materials, which is that there's a framework that we, I won't take credit for that someone else came up with, but we <laughs> like to use. And it's basically that all the materials that we use are either mined or grown originally in some way, right? So even something like plastic is made of like petroleum products, yeah. which are originally, you know, mined out of the ground. So at a very high level, what we need to do is to shift more of the materials that are coming from mined materials over to materials that are grown because those are going to be more earth digestible at end of life. And then just doing that's not enough because obviously you grow too much of any like monocrop and then you're going to start suffering agricultural consequences with negative impacts, right? So then first you got to shift people over to using these more sustainable materials in their daily products. But then in terms of how those products are produced, now you also got to start introducing more sustainable practices and how the grown materials are also produced, right? So you don't want to like play the whack-a-mole game where you sort of like, hit one mole on yeah. the head and it yeah. goes down and then some other mole pops up and you have another problem. So that's the thing is it's everything here is going to be a multi-step solution. Yeah. There's no silver bullet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And talking materials, so you have an investment called material evolution, not correct. And actually oh, yeah. I've been looking at the concrete, concrete space quite recently. And for, for the listeners context, the cement industry emits around 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is enormous. 
and there obviously needs to be a huge amount of innovation in the space. So at one of made an investment into material evolution. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, huge fan of this company, obviously, or a huge fan of all of our companies. So material evolution is working on a cement alternative that's called the geopolymer. There are many companies in the world working on geopolymers, but at least to date, they have not scaled hugely for a variety of reasons, largely related to kind of like their characteristics on how, how quick does it set, you know, and then how does that impact how you're able to use it? You know, are there issues with the feedstocks, you know, th things like that. And so what Material Evolution are doing is they're using a data science based approach where they can then sort of permutate through all these different combinations of ingredients and processing mechanisms and, and things like that very quickly to then arrive at an optimized mix faster than others have in the past. And it's a methodology that interestingly, another one of our portfolio companies uses, but they use it for food to create plant-based alternatives to, 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 you know, meat protein and animal protein, I should say. And we've seen it work really well for them in the food space. And so when we met Material Evolution, we were already quite comfortable with that approach and how data science can actually accelerate the rate of development for certain, you know, physical things, materials or food or otherwise that, that need to exist, but just haven't quite achieved the right characteristics yet. Yeah, that's fascinating. And great to see that, you know, you're not afraid to invest into some pretty, into hardware, which is, you know, going on, undergoing a lot of mm. R&D and Obviously, well, quite a lot of investors focus on the software side in climate tech. So it's, it's, we very much encouraged to see, to see that investment. And then there's obviously you, you've made an investment into the biodiversity ecosystem space. So what attracts you to investing into Dendra? What is Dendra? Ah, yes. So Dendra is a company that uses drones to plant trees. And so historically, planting trees is kind of a slow, laborious and very manual process. You kind of had to grow a little sapling in a nursery and then you transplant it and it costs about $7 a tree, roughly. Dendra has these big drones and they're loaded with seed pods that look like a big horse pill. <laughs> and they have seed and some nutrients and stuff in there. And they kind of just machine gun, you know, wow. seed pods into the ground, which is pretty cool <laughs> yeah i watched the video it's pretty cool they're, they're big drones yeah there's a ton of development that's got into their drones for sure and then after the seeding they then also use camera vision ai on the drones to do monitoring because that's kind of half the battle with planting trees is to make sure they actually survive and then they don't get taken over by weeds and that kind of thing so yeah they're we, we really like them because they are pushing biological sequestration rather than technical sequestration, but doing it in a way that it ha you know, has disrupted even economics, which is a cornerstone of our investment thesis, you know, that $7 a tree down to more like seven cents a tree. Um, yeah. It dramatically brings down that cost. So it has a very interesting commercial value proposition, but while, you know, like I said, pushes the, the biological piece of things a bit more because it's, yeah. it's going to be some time before technical sequestration solutions are, um, really mature, I think, to, to be able to scale um, at the size that we need them. And in the meantime, you know, nature has her own tools, Indeed. right? And there's, there's a lot to be said for just getting on nature's side, right? And, yeah. and just helping her do what she already does so effectively. There's actually a great moving map that I always tell everyone to look at on YouTube. Um, it's, I think it's done by NASA. 
and it shows this heat map where all the CO2 emissions, well, CO2 and other gases emissions are kind of red and swirling around on the map. And then it does a time lapse over the course of a year. And what you see is in the summer, when all the plants on the planet are full bloom and, you know, all the green leaves and everything are out in full force, all the red on the map goes away. Like it completely disappears. Incredible. Like, yeah, like nature actually is completely capable of just absorbing all the crap that we've put into the air. And then as the time lapse progresses, it gets to winter. And of course the plants die off and then all the red comes back. Right. Yeah. And I find that particular animation just really encouraging because of that point. Right. So, so it's Mm -hmm. just that nature can do it even despite everything we've come along to just bungle it up. Yeah. Nature can do it. And if we just get on nature's side, you know, and, and try to, to accelerate what nature's already doing on her own and stop getting in her way. Yeah. We, we definitely, it's, it's not just having a, you know, a couple of pathways, like I said earlier, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely feasible, right? It's biologically feasible and, and nature has proven that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, given the speed at which we need to curb emissions, I mean, it's a, it's a cause for rapidly accelerating reforestation, right? But there are obviously very difficult land use debates around this and where do you do it, what kind of trees to plant. And it's just good to see Dendra taking a sort of scientific approach as well as using technology to do it. So I'm hoping, well, what's that, what's that aim? How many trees do they want to plant by a certain time? You know, what's interesting is when we first met them, their ambition was to plant a billion trees. But again, you go and do the math and you realize you need to plant something more like a trillion trees. (laughs) That's kind of where they've revised their targets to is instead of planting millions per year, they got to get to at least reach for something more in the billions per year. Right. A tree is planted. It's a lot of trees. It's, it's, it's lofty. Lots of goals. Yeah. admirable. (laughs) I like that. That's cool. And obviously this brings me on to my next point, which is, it can be a controversial topic around carbon offsetting, but. I think, you know, we've spoken before about this, but for our listeners, I think the the sort of consensus is that carbon offsets actually encourage reforestation, but obviously there are some challenges in, in the carbon offset space. And I'd love to get your, your view, Helen, on, on just sort of what you think those challenges are and, and how we can get past those, because, you know, this clearly does play a part. Yeah, it does. So I used to be of the mind that carbon offsets just were completely broken and ineffective and that we just shouldn't even bother with them or, you know, touch them with a 10-foot pole. I think I was the same. The unfortunate reality, yeah, though, is we do kind of need them. And I'll tell you why. So think about things like a decision tree. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, is are we going to get to the Paris climate targets with abatement alone, meaning just by reducing... Uh, emissions, ongoing emissions alone. And the sad truth is no. Even if we completely stopped all emissions today, just like turned off the faucet, right? There's still enough in the atmosphere from history that's accumulated that we would still miss Paris targets and there would still be significant climate destabilization and catastrophic climate events. That's really sad, but that's the truth. And so what that means is to get to Paris targets, and avoid catastrophe, we need to aggressively abate and reduce ongoing emissions and also draw down the historical accumulated emissions that are already in the atmosphere. We need to do both. And that's, there's really no compromise. So, okay. So if you have to do drawdown and abatement is not enough, then what are your options for drawdown? 
I kind of touched on this earlier with Dendra, but you, your two options are you can go with technical sequestration or biological sequestration in your decision tree. Technical sequestration is direct air capture, point source capture, like from flue gases. So you build this huge machine, it kind of sucks, you know, air in and, and pulls the carbon dioxide out and then, you know, isolates it. Obviously, oversimplifying, it's actually very complicated <laughs> the yeah. technology, yeah. but that, that's high, is. high level. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> And, and biological sequestration is, you know, planting trees, again, using nature's own resources, right? Other forms of biomass that naturally sequester, draw down carbon and sequester carbon and just accelerating and scaling that. And so I think ultimately you'll probably need a bit of both. But as I said, the technical sequestration technologies right now are still not completely mature and none of them are operating at the kind of scale that we would need them to operate at to actually draw down the amount um, of emissions that we need. So in parallel or maybe alternatively, you got to pursue those biological sequestration methods like Dendra and, and even just more traditional forms of like planting trees and just doing like some of those carbon development projects of preserving the forest that we have, which is red plus or afforestation, which is planting of new forests. Yeah. The issue with that form of biological sequestration is who's going to pay for it? Exactly. <laughs> and what's the commercial model, right? I mean, that's great. Let's all go plant some trees. And while we're at it, we can all like also hold hands and sing Kumbaya and tell each other how we all <laughs> like each other a whole lot. It's just not going to happen no, it's that not, way, not right? Big, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, we it, it needs to be commercial, right? We live in this capitalistic world, unfortunately, and, and so that's just there has to be some way to to fund it. And right now, the best way we have of providing that funding for biological sequestration is going to be carbon offsets. So once you arrive at that conclusion, you realize that yes, for better or worse, we do need the offsets, and they are probably here to stay. Then you got to figure out well, how do we make them work? There is a lot that's kind of broken in that carbon value chain right now. And those are the pain points and the problem statements that we largely invest in, at least for that particular area. So you need better measurement tools, right, that are more reliable and more accurate and more precise mm -hmm. and also cheap. Yeah. Right. Because right now there's great ways that are very precise to measure carbon stocks, but they involve a bunch of human beings with tape measures going out to the forest and measuring every tree manually. And that's not scalable, <laughs> you know. So, you know, we, we have invested in like a, a remote sensing technology company. They're called Chloris. And they're using space-based LIDAR combined with machine learning algorithms to then estimate the carbon stocks in trees and other above-ground biomass with their technology at, at low cost. And so stuff like that is certainly going to help on the measurement side. I think there's some interesting sort of fintech-y companies that are looking at using blockchain, right, and, and other tools to try and also just create more transparency and immutability. So you don't get stuff like corporations double-dipping. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a scandal... Bloomberg Green did this really great expose documentary on the Nature Conservancy where they were found to be basically double dipping on a bunch of plots of forest or I think some of it was double dipping and some of it was they were pledging to preserve certain plots of forest land and then they just didn't. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a pretty good documentary if you look it up. Um, yeah, well. And then, yeah, so I think there's a transparency piece, there's a measurement piece. I think that we need to have better markets and then the regulators need to just step up, right, and just do their piece because... They're, they're just not there yet. And certainly in terms of regulating the carbon offset markets, they're not. And even before you get to an offset, the point is, is large corporations, let's say you're an oil and gas company, you're not supposed to be using offsets to offset all of your emissions. That's not what they were originally designed for. 
you're supposed to be trying to abate and reduce as much as physically possible. And only when you reach that hard floor of like the hardest to abate portion of your emissions, then you offset that last part. Exactly. The problem is, is all these corporations now are going and offsetting everything. And then they get to call themselves net zero and the whole thing yeah. is shiny Hit and wonderful. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. But it's not real. And so, so that's kind of like the first issue. So our view on this is, yes, there's a bunch we can invest in to try and fix the carbon value chain as VC investors. But there's a big piece of this that's outside of our reach that is the regulator's role to play, right? They need to come in, get rid of the cap and trade system, and just move to a polluter pays system, yeah. right? It isn't about, oh, you have these emissions, and the guy next to you is emitting a little bit less. And so you can, like, you know, cap and trade with him, and then, like, yeah. it's okay. And it, No, 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 no. You pollute, you pay, right? And then once that happens, then all of those payments from the polluter pay fines can then go to fund biological sequestration. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Right? But it should be the governing body that is then the receiver of like the polluter pay fine income and then like is this third-party objective institution that then goes off and invests that capital into the appropriate bi biological sequestration projects. Yeah. Right? Right now, the issue is there's other large corporations generically, right, that, that will remain nameless that are even initiating their own carbon projects. And that's a massive conflict of interest, right? Mm. Yeah. Because now it's like, oh, yeah, I'm launching my own forest yeah. protection, you know, Red Plus project in the Amazon. And of course, I'm hugely incentivized for that to just look like it's working so that I can count it towards me achieving my net zero targets. And yet I'm the one who's managing my own forest project. It's, yeah. No, it, you know, and then, yeah, and then there's some third parties that they bring in to make it look like it's more the third party doing it. But, you know, yeah. they're still the ones that are backing it and, and initiating a lot of it. And, and so there's, it's just rife with, yeah, it adversely aligned incentives. Yeah. So our view on that, you know, is, is just regulators just needs to like kind of reconfigure how that whole system is working right now. So like don't cap and trade just fine. Yeah. Reallocate that capital, pull that towards biological sequestration through a regulated government entity rather than letting the polluters like create their own self-reinforcing and conflicted mm -hmm. value chains like, you know, circles. And that's going to be a lot of work. Yeah, it's a little change you know, required. To, to get that done, and there's politics involved, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a burden. Of... But in the meantime, we're investing in the things that we, we can to try and kind of push that along. You know, at least we can try to crack some of the measurement problems and things like that. But we kind of have to push on the rest of the ecosystem, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for that. That was that was really like comprehensive and good to hear the, the different sort of segments of, of this problem of carbon offsetting and... Obviously, the regulator point is too difficult to change, I think, for us. But yeah, we can focus on those areas, which obviously you're doing at one, which is exciting. So switching another gear here, or maybe a sort of environmental way of changing season, would be the quick file round. So three questions. Biggest mistake founders make? Oh, over-pitching. Um, yeah, they, they get in front of an investor and they're just like, everything is great. This is how great we are. These are the great things we're going to do. And it just comes off as way too much of like a secondhand car salesman kind of thing. <laughs> and investors just shut off. Yeah. Right. So just the opposite of that, that would be the right thing to do is be honest, talk about what's good, but also talk about what you're still working on. That's a work in process and you know, that you want support on maybe even, and that will come off way better. Done. Nice. Next up, a seed or pre-seed series A, whichever kind of tech startup you're most excited about and why. Can I just talk about one that we've just invested in recently? Of course. Because it's, they've just clicked into our portfolio. I'll cheat, sorry. So we've just invested in the company called Helios that's taking a crack at steel. 
So similar to cement, also like 7 to 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, they're based out of Israel. And what is really cool about their story is they originally started as a space tech company and they were trying to find ways to produce oxygen out of like certain materials on the moon. <laughs> and in the process, they accidentally stumbled upon this chemistry and, and chemical process that could produce iron. Wow. <laughs> and so now they've kind of, yeah, pivoted into commercializing that and we're supporting them to do it. So that's a very cool story. That's a very good story. Yeah. Third and last question. Best way to keep up with climate tech news. How do you do it? Helen, you're obviously so, so well read. How do you do that? Well, I would say the best way to keep up with climate tech news is maybe not to just look at the news, <laughs> which feels counterintuitive because like I said earlier, there's a lot of sensationalist stuff in the news. And so it can be hard to get reality from that. I think there are great events nowadays. Now that in-person is back, that's some of my favorite way because then you also just get to engage with like, like-minded people who also attend the event and it just makes it all more real. And, you know, Maybe it's a bit cheesy, but podcasts like this, you know, are another great way. To, Absolutely. Uh, That's just the great, kind of great hear, Yeah. <laughs> hear from people on at the front lines, right, um, of the effort. But the point is, it's just like, find ways that are real and find ways that resonate personally and are hopefully a little bit freer from just political bias or sensationalist, you know, tendencies. And that's, to, you know, that's how you get to to the parts that are more grounded in truth and the real world. And it's also just like the part, the most important thing is to find a way that it resonates with you personally so that you hopefully get involved. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, So whatever way that works for various people, how do you make it personal and how do you make it individual for you? And that's the way that you should do it. Love that. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. What's next for at one? Obviously you're coming towards the end of fun one. Yeah. So we're actually uh, raising funds too now, which is targeted to be a larger fund theme, investment thesis and scope and mandate of slightly larger checks will be supporting another 30 great companies there. And so, yeah, exciting Exciting. things on the horizon. And we're also building out our team in parallel with that. Really exciting. Fantastic. Right, Helen, well, for all the the listeners, how how can they, if they're your founders, uh, policymakers want to chat about, you know, regulation of carbon markets, how can they get hold of you? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn. If you just search for Helen Lynn at One Ventures, I believe I pop right up and I'm pretty good about staying active there. So that's a great way for startups specifically, if they are seeking capital and think that they could fit our investment criteria, we have a section on our website where they can apply for funding and fill out a form with some basic information. And it's just a little bit more structured and just makes it a little bit easier for us to review. And for yeah, for everybody else, I think LinkedIn is, uh, is a great way to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, Helen, thank you so much for sharing your insights with, with us today. It's been phenomenally interesting. So thank you. And I look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks for having me.